We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Go episode 357 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, July 15th, 2022. It is the day on which we have a 4 p.m. Eastern deadline for NFL teams to sign players slapped right across the face with franchise tags in the 2022 offseason to multi year contracts or contract extensions. Do you remember this deadline day? We as Redskins slash Washington football team fans became quite familiar with this day via the saga of quarterback Kirk Cousins and the saga of right guard Brandon Sheriff. Well, we luckily have no such saga for our commanders this offseason. Oh, we as commanders fans have plenty of sagas right now, but a franchise tag saga is not among those sagas. Hello and welcome to a Friday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. If you caught the final segment of Thursday's show, episode 356, you heard me say that I was planning on having a special guest for you for Friday's show. Now, I did not name the guest. I did not want to jinx anything, but I told you that the plan was to have a special guest for Friday's show. Well, I am happy to say we have the special guest. Next segment. On this installment of the Al Galdi podcast, NFL analytics pioneer Warren Sharp. He is quite possibly the single most important person in the rise of analytics in the NFL. Warren was writing and talking about analytics in the NFL years ago, years before analytics became popular in the NFL. He is outstanding at writing and talking and thinking about the NFL. He has just come out with his annual NFL preview, the Sharp Football Analysis 2022 Football Preview. And Warren is going to spend a good chunk of time with us talking commanders. This will not be like some eight-minute interview. Trust me on that, okay? This will not be a wham-bam, thank you, ma'am kind of interview. And this will not be an interview in which the host asks Warren a bunch of questions about teams other than the commanders. By the way, that is one of my biggest pet peeves. I can't stand when hosts in this area do that. 
I don't care about the Cleveland Browns, okay? Ask a big-name NFL guest about our team, the Commanders. This is the Washington, D.C. area. Ask about the Washington, D.C. NFL team uh, that does play its home games in Maryland and does have the team headquarters in Virginia. But that's a separate story. Uh, But you will hear on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast, Warren Sharp discuss the commander's approach at quarterback. You will hear Warren provide a deep dive on the commander's new starting quarterback, Carson Wentz. You will hear Warren reveal a jarring truth about Washington's offensive line. You will hear Warren give an extensive breakdown of Scott Turner and whether he's a good or not so good offensive coordinator. You will hear Warren discuss where we are with rushing offense in the NFL in 2022. You will hear Warren discuss where we are with defense in the NFL in 2022 and much more. Warren Sharp, groundbreaking NFL mind on this podcast, Talking Commanders next segment. Also on the show, uh, I will talk Nationals. Uh, We on Thursday night had the returns of two pitchers in their late 30s to the Nats at the major league level, Anibal Sanchez and Tyler Clippard. Yeah, (laughs) so much for a rebuild, right? Two pitchers in their late 30s pitching for the Nats on Thursday night. Uh, Sanchez was mixed. Clippard was really good, but the Nats lost again, a 5-4 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park in game one of a four-game series. Nats did rally, uh, but they came up short. Uh, A few things before we get to some feedback. Uh, First of all, more moves by the Capitals on Thursday on what was day two of NHL free agency. Now, Thursday was not nearly as crazy of a day for the Caps as Wednesday was, but the Caps on Thursday announced more moves, uh, including the re-signing of unrestricted free agent defenseman Matt Irwin to a one-year two-way contract and the signing of unrestricted free agent forward Dylan Strom, a one-year $3.5 million deal. Uh, This coming season will be Strom's age 25 season. He can play both as a wing and as a center. He's coming off a nice season. Uh, Strom in 69 games in the 2021-2022 regular season for the Chicago Blackhawks, 48 points, 22 goals, and 26 assists. Uh, Andy had a career best 1726 time on ice per game. A lot of activity by the Caps over the first two days of NHL free agency. Uh, also, all the best to Commanders insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post. Uh, Nikki on Thursday afternoon on Twitter revealed that she had been battling cancer, uh, but now has been cleared to cover Commanders training camp. Uh, She tweeted out a GIF of her ringing the bell at a hospital slash uh, treatment facility. Uh, This reveal was news to a lot of people, myself included. Uh, Commander's head coach Rod Rivera, who of course also has battled cancer, wrote a nice response to Nikki's tweet. Uh, I've had Nikki on the podcast, very nice person, uh, very good at her job. It's funny, I was texting with her a few weeks ago trying to get her back on the pod, and she was very nice, but she said that she was unavailable due to getting treatment for a health issue. So, you know, I said, all right, cool, all the best to you. You know, I didn't press, you know, well, what's the issue? Like, hey, you know, none of my business, hope she's doing well. Well, now I know <laughs> what the uh, health issue was. So again, all the best to Nikki. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast 
at yahoo.com. Email from Rich on our Commander's co-owner and co-CEO, Dan Snyder, who continues to dance the dance with Congress in it, wanting him to testify under a subpoena about the workplace misconduct scandal and continues to deny Congress. I talked about this on Thursday's show, episode 356, including the truth being that Team Danny is winning the battle with Congress right now. Writes Rich, there's an opportunity for the commanders to make take command more than a tagline. The commanders could create a take command public service outreach. Send some players out to schools to have kids take command of their education. Have players talk to kids about how to take command of their bodies through exercise and avoiding drugs. Have some take command events where kids can meet players and do activities. Offer a take command scholarship. Create a take command center in the city. You could have an education center and a gym, maybe a field. Doing this as a public-private partnership with the city could be beneficial. This could start to repair the relationship with the city. Danny Boy needs some good PR. The team name is still not embraced by a significant percentage of the fan base. Taking a genuine interest in the community, giving back in a substantial, effective way, would give Take Command real weight and meaning. Take Command could help Snyder by reinforcing his place with NFL ownership. Ultimately, it could give Snyder a chance to leave a lasting legacy with the community, even if he doesn't win a championship. Also, Danny Boy should try to avoid shoving any other ladies toward his limousine. Probably pretty important. Uh, yeah, that probably is pretty important, Rich, but thank you for the email. A very good idea. Now, I will say that the team does do a lot of charity work, a lot of community work. Uh, the Commander's Charitable Foundation, uh, what was the Redskins Charitable Foundation, and then the Washington Football Charitable Foundation has done a lot of good work over the years. So I've seen some of that work myself. Uh, the team has helped a lot of people, but no doubt a program in which the team uses the rebrand in some new initiatives, uh, not a bad idea at all. Uh, email from Rusty in Ashburn, Virginia about Dan Snyder. Writes Rusty, congratulations on the continued success of the podcast. I'm a longtime listener from the days of Sports Saturday with Al Galdi, which is still a sentimental favorite. While I have always enjoyed your radio shows, I like the podcast format even better. And with no 980 program director to get in the way, <laughs> I never miss an episode. I have always appreciated the care and preparation you put in. Your consistent attention to detail is by far the best in the local media market. And I really love the sound drops, scheduled fun, and of course, pinpoint analysis. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you very much for that, Rusty. Continues, Rusty. A potential topic for your consideration. I think you've done a great job of pointing out some of the things that managed to escape our attention as beaten down fans of the local football franchise for the last 23 plus years. But maybe here is one more in our haste to understand the motives and strategies of the various parties and game out the next steps in the whole congressional investigation. I think it has gone overlooked what a tremendously bad look this would be for the owner of virtually any other comparable business. Dan Snyder asks us to view him as a prominent and respectable business owner. Call me old-fashioned, but when you say that that is what you are, when Congress comes calling and asks you to testify, you show up, regardless of which party is in charge at the moment. Dan Snyder is not some controversial political figure like Steve Bannon. 
Dan is not some international man of mystery like Julian Assange or some narco lord. Dan is the owner of a very prominent local business. If Steve Bashotti or Clark Hunt was asked to testify to Congress about something, they wouldn't need a subpoena. If Ted Leonsis was asked to testify before Congress, he would show up with a camera crew and a big smile and somehow turn the whole thing into a promo for his latest business venture. This is not what prominent, respectable business people do. To force Congress to issue a subpoena for your testimony is already embarrassing. To then evade service of that subpoena like some kind of low-level mob boss on the lam is a really, really bad look for someone as prominent as the owner of an NFL team. In any event, I cannot imagine that the other owners are enjoying this spectacle any more than we are. First off, Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Uh, Thank you for the email, Rusty. Uh, Excellent email. And yes, happy Thanksgiving to you, too. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, Danny. Hello. Uh, It's funny because we have become so used to the Dan Snyder reality that there certainly has been a desensitizing that has taken place to where things that would be viewed as ridiculous in just about any other situation with just about any other person are now just accepted. Uh, What is very clear, right, is that Dan Snyder has things to hide. If he didn't, then he would just testify before Congress. He would have testified uh, at that June 22nd hearing at which NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell testified. If Dan had nothing to hide, then he and his legal team would not be going out of their way for him not to testify. He clearly has things that he doesn't want to talk about and doesn't want to get asked about. That's obvious. And at this point, I do feel like that goes without saying. But yeah, we should say that once in a while, right? And I do say that once in a while, uh, just to reset the reality. I guess part of why we don't talk more about the reality is that it has been the reality for so long. That there's just a feeling that the reality goes without saying. Uh, The situation really is absurd when you think about it. Uh, Email from Kenny of something that I talked about last week. Episode 349, the commanders patting themselves on the back for their diversity. The commanders have done this over and over and over again over the last few years now. Uh, The latest instance of this was in a statement from a spokesperson for Dan Snyder slamming the Washington Post, quote, the Snyders will continue to focus on their league-leading fight to bring greater respect and much-needed diversity and equality to the workplace in the face of constant and baseless attacks from the media and elsewhere, end quote. Writes Kenny, I agree with your point on the commanders touting their own diversity. It is weird and unnecessary. I work for a Fortune 500 company. Building a diverse workforce, age, race, gender, geography, background, etc., is one of our goals for many reasons. Mainly, we believe based on studies, it makes a more productive company. I personally know, for example, someone who grew up on a farm with those skills and insights can add something to a company an inner city person like me cannot. We set goals and report against those goals to Wall Street. We do not make a diverse hire and then promote the hire we made or state ourselves our specific accomplishments related to diversity. What we do is work behind the scenes with media publications to make sure we are included in those publications' annual rankings. It is much more powerful for someone else to compliment you rather than doing that yourselves. The commanders mess up easy stuff that is known by seasoned leaders. 
Uh, outstanding point, Kenny. Outstanding. That is exactly the way that things should be. Let others point out the diversity, even if you behind the scenes have to sort of hold the hands of others in order for them to recognize your diversity. But when you pat yourself on the back publicly, that is not a good look. Continues, Kenny. A little off topic, Dan Snyder is almost exactly my age, and it is sad that he may be the owner for the rest of my life. Having grown up rooting for a proud organization, it is just a shame. I think he has many flaws as a human, but I also think that what happened to him is that he came to owning this team without any good mentors. I think his original sin was getting rid of Charlie Casserly and choosing Norv Turner. That left Dan with very few people who could teach him how to run a large organization. Dan's choice of Vinny and then choice of Bruce were detrimental. That is 10 years working and taking advice from Vinny, 1999 to 2009, and 10 years working with Bruce, 2009 to 2019. That is a lot of time working with bad leaders. Charlie, while imperfect, could have been the bridge from success. He could have leveraged Joe Gibbs, who is a great leader, not just a coach, but a leader, as example, by what he built in NASCAR, running toe-to-toe with some old established teams. Also, what Joe did in the strike years, handling Dexter Manley, the 5 o'clock club, John Riggins, Joe Theismann, etc. Joe is just amazing. Sorry I get carried away with Joe. Good pod, as usual. Uh, Thank you for the email. Kenny. Yeah, that one-two combo of Vinny Serrato and Bruce Allen really is something. We did have the one year between 99 and 09 without Vinny. Remember 2001, uh, that was the Marty Schottenheimer year. Uh, Marty was a head coach in a coach-centric approach. He oversaw Redskins player personnel, and he got rid of Vinny. Uh, But Vinny, that was brought back upon Dan Snyder parting with Marty after that 2001 season. And what will always be so funny to me is how we all initially viewed Bruce as a savior. Dan, in December 2009, firing Vinny as executive vice president of football operations, although technically Vinny resigned, and hiring Bruce as executive vice president slash general manager. I'll never forget that day. Vinny being out was viewed as like a coup. And the arrival of Bruce was celebrated. People, myself included, were genuinely excited about the arrival of Bruce Allen as the team's EVP slash GM. And, uh, well, then came the rest of the story. All right, enough Dan Snyder talk. Up next, Warren Sharp talking commanders. I'll get to that after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for subscribing. Do not forget uh, to give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And if you're really feeling generous, uh, please write a brief review saying that you like the podcast. You can do that on Apple Podcasts. This episode of the Al Galdi Podcast is for Friday, July 15th. 2022 Commander's Training Camp will begin on July 27th. 12 days away are we from the start of Commander's Training Camp. Uh, I have been having on the podcast a variety of special guests to talk commanders in preparation for camp and their upcoming season. And it is a true pleasure and honor to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now a very special guest. He is an NFL analytics pioneer. He is a man whose work I reference often. He is the great Warren Sharp of sharpfootballanalysis.com and sharpfootballstats.com. Warren is the author of an outstanding book, The Sharp Football Analysis 2022 Football Preview. 500-plus pages of in-depth analysis and commentary on all 32 NFL teams and hundreds of NFL players. Uh, You can get the book at sharpfootballanalysis.com. You can follow Warren on Twitter at Sharp football. Uh, Warren, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great now the book is out, Al. And just so you know, uh, I have listened to you before. You've got a legendary voice. Obviously, um, I, I've been in the D.C. region and I'm familiar with your work. So it's certainly a pleasure to be speaking with you on the podcast today and looking forward to breaking down you know, your Washington commanders and some of the other trends that we're noticing around the league. Well, I appreciate you saying those things very much. Uh, Before we get to the Commanders, the book, The Sharp Football Analysis 2022 Football Preview, you do this every year. The book is an amazing endeavor. I'm just curious, what is your process for writing the book? How do you attack going so deep in detail on all 32 NFL teams? So it, it definitely is something that has been helpful that I have some of the same format that I can use from prior years in terms of updating all the data and seeing all the things that truly matter to wins and losses very easily. Um, and so when it comes to actually analyzing each and every team, obviously I, I understand what they're doing in free agency and the pieces that they're adding. I understand coaching changes. I understand the draft. And then I try to look back and the way that I attack every single team just from the big picture level is 31 of these teams did not achieve their ultimate goal last year. What went wrong last year? What were they doing that wasn't smart? What were they doing that was smart? What should they be doing this year that is is different that could help them get further along? And then do I think they will 
make those changes? And where do I see this team headed for the future based upon all the things that we know influence outcomes, which includes the schedule and their rest opportunities and um, obviously who they have on the team that's new this year and different coaches and different philosophies that might be introduced. So um, it takes a long time. I start working on it in March and updating things and trying to get my thoughts focused. And I really start doing the deep rights on every single team after the draft, which is obviously late April, early May. And then I really dive into kind of um, trying to rewrite. After I write, I then go back and rewrite things. We, we edit things, of course. And uh, I am fortunate that we have a few other people on the staff who do. I, I try to get people to write about their specialties. So one of the guys like only focuses on defenses for our website pretty much. And so he analyzes all the defenses for every team and who they have this year and what they struggled with last year. Obviously we have a fantasy football expert who's been very accurate over his prediction. So he's giving people ideas about fantasy ceilings. And then I've got one of the best mock, one of the guys that has the best mock draft history, they, they track these things in terms of accuracy over the last five years. He's in the top five in the nation, at least in this one website's contest. And so he writes up the impact of every single team's draft class. And he specializes as to what will this, what's the immediate impact of those players? I don't care for the purposes of this book. Yeah. I wonder what's going to happen in the future, two, three, four years from now, but mainly we're trying to figure out, is this team going to be better this year? How will they do against their current expectations in the Vegas market? Um, and so we do attack a lot of those things as well as just my big picture analytical thoughts about failures and what I expect out of these teams this year. Well, that's outstanding. And your work is very much appreciated. Uh, I know that I've learned a lot from reading you over the years. So the commanders, you on June 29th tweeted that the chapter on Washington in your book is one of the better chapters in the book. What struck you in particular in researching and writing about the commanders? Well, in part, it's the way that Scott Turner calls this offense and the lack of a good quarterback that they've had recently. And then kind of just the, the, the volatility that a guy like Carson Wentz brings to the table, because he is in my opinion, from an arm talent perspective, overall talent perspective, the best quarterback that, for example, Terry McLaurin has worked with, this coaching staff certainly has worked with. You guys have struggled in the talent level at quarterback for a while now. So from a talent perspective, he brings upside that you guys didn't have before. But from the overall quarterback play, there's a lot of things that are very challenging or frustrating from what he does not deliver. And, you know, he, he's out of all the quarterbacks in the league that have thrown at least 600 pass attempts over the last two years, he has the worst accuracy in the NFL. And I find that interesting because it's not as if you guys have worked with a lot of great quarterbacks that have had accuracy, but what Scott Turner has done is he's really lowered the A dot, the average depth of target and gotten the ball out of these guys' hands quickly to try to just maintain some sort of efficiency on offense and not really worried about those level three throws quite as frequently but you do have a guy who can complete some of those um but now he's playing behind a bad offensive line well it'll be debatable i'm interested to hear your thoughts on their offensive line i don't want to say bad but it's certainly not in my opinion this top five unit that is graded out that way by pro football focus so there's a lot to dive in and, and just keeping a big picture for the time being i'll just say that um 
there's a lot of different outcomes that I'm expecting from this team. And I still think that if you look big picture, are they building the right way to have success long-term in DC? I have my concerns because the route of plugging and playing veteran quarterbacks that have failed elsewhere as your starter has not worked. I know the Rams just won a Super Bowl with Matt uh, Stafford in there, but Matt Stafford is a Pro Bowl quarterback who is playing at a Pro Bowl level in in a variety of different years. And they had a system that was complete. They, they just had gone to the Super Bowl a couple of years before. They were well suited to just stick him in there and achieve that. Most teams in the league are building through drafting a guy and then cultivating him because he's so cheap. And when you go after guys like a Ryan Fitzpatrick and like a Carson Wentz and some of these other guys that they've tried to bring in there, uh, it, it just doesn't seem to work long term. So I'm concerned there, but I do think that this is a team that should be able to battle around 500 in a weaker NFC and has an outside shot at making the playoffs. Although I'm personally, I'm not particularly strong on that and they won't be, you know, commanders to make the postseason is not a bet that's going to be in my portfolio this year. It's a funny thing with the commanders trading for Carson Wentz. When the trade happened in March, I had major questions and concerns, and I still do. But what I've also found with Wentz is that the more that I've dug into him, the more that I've liked. Uh, The analytics with Wentz are fascinating. There definitely are things that frighten you, okay? There's no doubt about that. But there also are things that are encouraging. Uh, He has finished in the top 12 among qualified NFL quarterbacks in ESPN's total QBR in four of the last five NFL regular seasons. He, for the 2021 regular season, was number one among qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in Football Outsiders DVOA metric on pass attempts of at least 20 air yards. Uh, Some of the EPA stats for Wentz are good. Do you see in Carson Wentz a quarterback who could be good for the commanders this coming season, or do you view him more as a road to nowhere and view the positive Carson Wentz talk is more just wishful thinking. There definitely is upside. As you just mentioned, I'm looking at some of the uh, EPA based statistics here, throwing the ball 20 plus yards down the field. He's night and day different than Taylor Heineke was last season, right? Like yards per attempt. He was sixth. Heineke was 30th success rate. He was ninth. Heineke was 26th. Uh, EPA per attempt, he was seventh. Heineke was 29th. So you're moving from a guy who was a liability trying to throw the ball down the field to a guy who is better and does have more upside. The frustrations that you have with Carson Wentz, I think, are are twofold. The first one is, well, one frustration and then one concern that I have this season about him being integrated correctly, introducing it with the offensive line. The frustration is just his performance on these third downs and his performance in uh, the red zone at times, you know, you've watched him and you've probably cheered when this happens, but when he played in Philadelphia, especially after his couple of injuries, right? Like he tears his ACL, then they win the Super Bowl. He's coming back that next season, rehabbing his ACL. Then the following season, he hurts his back in the, um, and he's, he's trying to rehab that in the off season. And since those injuries, I mean, that's when his accuracy was struggling a little bit, but he makes these boneheaded type decisions, these very mind boggling decisions and puzzling decisions as to what is he doing on second and third downs? I think he has one of the worst 
uh, sack plus interception rates in the league on third downs. Um, he, he, he fumbles the football. He makes scared decisions in the pocket, doesn't get rid of the ball on time, uh, tries to do too much. He sometimes holds on to it, trying to move around and reset himself. And, 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 but at the same time, he lacks awareness in the pocket and, it just frustrates the hell out of you watching him. And then there's this other element too, where, you know, the Eagles, it certainly would have been in their best interest. They found a guy, they drafted a guy they gave him a big contract and all of a sudden they're completely out on him. And then you go to the Indianapolis Colts where Frank Reich, he was with Carson in Indianapolis. He loved Carson and he was buying in and he was defending him in that first year. And then all of a sudden in the off season, it's like, this isn't a guy we can win with. We've got to get rid of him. Um, you know, multiple guys and coaches that have worked with him closely before that were had every reason to defend him, whether it was we drafted him and gave him a massive deal. We'll look stupid if we get rid of him or we just brought him in. I think I can fix him. I've worked with him before. And both these teams are like willing to get rid of him. The question that I have with him this year, though, Al, is with the with the way that he likes to hold on to the ball a little bit too much and the playmaker in him, he's trying to make plays down the field. How is that going to mesh with Turner's philosophy, which has been get the ball out quickly and get the ball out short, coupled with the fact that this offensive line, you look at the pro football focus grades, they are top five the last couple of years. You look at other metrics that I've cited in the book where on any pass attempt that travels beyond the first down marker, they're allowing at about a league average to above average pressure rate on quarterbacks. Anytime the quarterbacks are on second or third down, when it's more of a obvious passing situation, second or third and eight plus yards to go, they are allowing pressure at a higher rate than normal. Those things don't necessarily jive or mesh with the pro football focus grades on the offensive line. And so I think that this offensive line is elevated due to the scheme and philosophy that Turner presents for his quarterbacks. But if Carson doesn't buy into and strictly adhere to that philosophy, I think he's going to get pressured at a rate which will cause these problems to befall him. And that's my concern with him behind this line in particular. I know the Colts line last year was relatively injured, but that from a talent perspective is one of the better lines in the league. It just was very injured last year. And the same was true for Philadelphia. Philly has always had one of the better offensive lines in the league from a talent perspective, but has been injured as well. Washington's talent doesn't stack up with those two lines. And so it's going to be interesting to see how he survives behind that line and how willing he is to get rid of that ball on time uh, in structure with the offense. All right, I'm going to ask Warren Sharp about the truth about the commander's offensive line. But first, the truth about buying a home in the Washington, D.C. area is that doing so could be tricky, especially with everything going on right now. And so if you are wanting to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kel, as in Kellen Hunt, as your real estate agent, visit CloseItWithKel.com. That's CloseItWithKel, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. The Washington, D.C. area real estate market is competitive. Uh, we, of course, have all kinds of things going on with our economy right now. What is the right way to approach buying a home in the D.C. area? What are the best strategies? How do you make sure that your offer for the home that you want 
is the offer that wins. Well, this is where Kellen Hunt comes in. Kellen Hunt has a mastery of the Washington, D.C. area real estate market, but he's not just some know-it-all. He is here for you, to listen to you, to hear what you want, and then determine the best way of going about getting you what you want, no matter your age or situation in life. Kellen Hunt's website says it all. Close it with Kel. Com. Kellen Hunt is a closer, just as our commanders recently closed a contract extension with Terry McLaurin. Kellen Hunt will close you buying the home that you want, and Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yeah, you the buyer get a piece of the action. Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing, and he wants to help. So visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs, and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. You have nothing to lose. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. Book your introductory call with Kellen Hunt at CloseItWithKell.com. If you are trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kell. Visit CloseItWithKel.com and tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. All right, we get back now to our conversation, talking commanders with NFL analytics pioneer Warren Sharp of SharpFootballAnalysis.com and SharpFootballStats.com. He is the author of the Sharp Football Analysis 2022 football preview. So Washington's offensive line has become an analytics darling in recent seasons. This has been pretty surprising, I think, to a lot of people Washington finished the 2021 regular season at number nine in the NFL in team pass block win rate per ESPN, number one in the NFL in team run block win rate per ESPN, and number six in overall offensive line play per pro football focus. The commander's offensive line per sharp football analysis is the number 12 offensive line in the NFL. Let me interrupt. Just throw the exact number out there on second because your listeners, they love your analytics. So I might as well give them a specific here. It's in the chapter two if you read it. But on second and third down with eight plus yards to go, Washington allowed the fourth highest pressure rate last year. 42% of dropbacks on second or third and long came when the quarterback was pressured. And just, you know, to your point, it's, it's, they're throwing the, a high rate of their pass attempts come with this low ADOT. They have the Scott Turner, if I didn't mention this earlier, Scott Turner has the lowest ADOT of any offense in the NFL. Everything is short for this offense, and that has helped them rank top five, and it's helped their pass rush, pass rush win rates excel because they don't have to protect for as long when everything comes out quick and short these guys look like they're doing a better job of keeping defenders away from the quarterback so it's it's just a very interesting situation they find themselves in yes it is and uh, great insight from you on that you know there has been a lot of debate in the washington dc area over the last two years about scott turner uh where are you on scott as an offensive coordinator um i think he is he does some things that I really love. He uses among the highest rates in the NFL of pre-snap motion and of play action. Um, he has a high pass rate in general. Some of the runs on second downs are bothersome. I mean, they're one of the, I tweeted this metric, uh, tweeted this statistic out yesterday. I'm going to try to pull it up here. Um, the, run rate after a first down incompletion, the run rate on second down, Washington is the fourth highest in the league last year. 64% of their second downs after they threw an incompletion on first down 
were run plays. And obviously that's, that's terrible. It becomes predictable. And in addition, um, it's it, running on second and 10 is far from ideal. It's not going to, it's not going to bypass third downs. And as I write about in the book, and as we might talk about league-wide principles, the number one metric that correlates with winning football games, besides turnover margin, which is hard to forecast, and leading at halftime, which obviously is correlated with winning games, um, is early down efficiency, being able to bypass third downs. And so if you're running the ball on second down, you're not going to be able to do that. But So from a philosophical approach he understands some of the things that they are supposed to do that will create efficiency in the league on these motions and play actions and that type of thing the hard part is a stat like this um where it's like why are we, why are we doing this so often but then you wonder if he had a better quarterback would he be doing something differently it's, it's very difficult to get too critical of an offensive coordinator when he's running through all these various different quarterbacks. I mean, how are you really going to design a great offense for Alex Smith? They were very unable to run the football. And that's another question that I have with regard to Carson Wentz this upcoming season is if they're not able to run the football and give Carson some support, that's going to be a big problem. And this team was running the football, um, 120, I, have a, I have a metric here that I used in the book. If Washington is going to run 120 times into heavy boxes on early downs, they're going to have to do so far more efficiently because they were bottom five in the NFL in efficiency when they ran the football against these heavy boxes. So they have to figure out better ways from a play calling perspective of running into light boxes and then throwing when the defense is playing with a heavier box. And, um, I don't know. It's it's a it's a hard question to answer as to whether or not I think he is a great or above average coordinator. I definitely do not think that he is bad or bottom ten. Um, I, I think he is average, and he can be above average. I think he would be. It would be easier for him if he had a better quarterback to work with. He has been stuck with ever since he became coordinator in Carolina. He's been stuck with quarterbacks that do not give him the best chance at showing probably everything that would be in his arsenal as a play caller. While we're talking commander's offense and NFL offensive philosophies, by now, I think that most people understand that passing is more efficient than running and that passing offense is much more important for winning in the NFL than rushing offense is. Uh, That said, rushing offense does matter. And so right now in the NFL, going into the 2022 season, what is the appropriate way to be thinking about rushing offense? Well, I think it's very interesting this season. I think it's more interesting this year than it was to have this discussion with you a couple of years ago, because a couple of years ago, the philosophy for running the football is only do it enough to uh, make it so that you're not predictable offensively. Because the one, the rules are so slanted in modern football towards offenses and towards scoring so that we can keep fans in the stands and keep uh, people watching on TV so that their fantasy teams are doing well. And everything is about all the rules changes since like 2008, 2010 have been about offense-minded football. Um, that the only thing that you're going to have problems with against defenses up until this point is 
if you're predictable. Because otherwise, you should be able to design an offense that is going to have the edge over defenses based upon these rules. And the rules have all been favoring the passing, favoring the quarterbacks, protecting them, allowing wide receivers to get off easier, no downfield holding, like everything has been helping them in that sense. But what is interesting we saw last year was this rise of the cover two shell defenses and the defenses that are trying to invite the run a little bit more. And the philosophy from guys like Brandon Staley and Vic Fangio is we would rather sit back and we're going up against Patrick Mahomes. We know that Andy Reid and the Chiefs want to throw the ball a ton, but what happens if they're dealing with only five men in the box on early downs? You know, they they want to throw the ball at like a 72% clip on these plays, but we're going to flood the passing lanes and we're going to take away the routes and we're going to make them either dink and dunk their way down the field through the air and not get these explosives from Tyreek Hill. Or they're going to have to turn around and hand the football off. And that helps us because Patrick Mahomes is not throwing the ball. So that's why this season, I think, is going to be so fascinating because that's how defenses played Andy Reid's Chiefs a lot last year. And the Buffalo Bills faced a little bit more of that as well on their end. And you have teams that are better suited to play that style of defense and some that aren't. But in general, like in a team like the Chargers, they tried to play that defense, yet they had They did not have, when you're playing that defense, you have to have a D tackle that is able to play on early downs and really help suffocate the run game to some extent. You don't need to hold them to three yards or even four, but you can't allow like 5.3, which is what they were allowing on early downs, worst run defense in the NFL. Then teams are still going to have success and they can just turn around and do that twice and they got a first down and they're bypassing third downs anyways. So they went out, though, thanks to Justin Herbert being on a rookie deal, as we alluded to, with the benefits of that earlier. And they plugged in a couple of defensive tackles in free agency that are going to help shore that problem up. Passing is still by far the most efficient way to move the ball down the field and to score points. But now you have to be a little bit more tactical about that box count, in my opinion. You need to give your quarterbacks more freedom at the line of scrimmage to audible based upon those box counts into the right looks from a run perspective. If you think you've got the opportunity to gain some yardage on the ground, and if your run game is not absolutely atrocious against light boxes, the Philadelphia Eagles were an interesting example last season. What were they the first six weeks of the year? the number two most pass-heavy team in the NFL on early downs. Jalen Hurts dropped back and threw the ball a ton his his first season starting as quarterback. However, they were being treated like Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. The Philadelphia Eagles, I wrote this in their chapter, Jalen Hurts faced the third highest rate of light boxes on early downs the first six weeks of the season. And so he was terrible. On first down, he was fine passing because defenses were sort of playing a little bit more run, and he was good. On second and third downs, he was terrible throwing the football in those first six, seven weeks of the season, and the Eagles weren't winning many games. And what they realized is if these defenses are going to play with such light boxes, we don't necessarily love our running backs, but we have got to try to run the football against these guys to take advantage of those opportunities. And they did, and they had a lot more success down the stretch. So I think it's going to be incumbent upon let's throw the ball first and foremost, pass when the defense might be playing run, which is first down. You got to be passing the ball more than, but be okay with audibling to the run if the defenses are going to play with multiple guys way back to take away deep stuff and play light boxes. We've got to be okay with audibling to that. And then lastly, Al, inside the red zone, near the goal line, 
I think far too many people think the strategies are spread the field and pass or condense and run. But the reality is down near the goal line, the most efficient play calls are when you spread the field and run. Spread the field, get the defense spread, and running inside the 10, inside the 20-yard line, inside the red zone, running running backs from like 11 personnel, three wide receivers out there, are some of the most efficient runs in the NFL. Runs should come primarily on short yardage and down inside the red zone, but you don't want to be, unless you got like a Derrick Henry and you can afford to do that, you don't want to be running from like 21 personnel too frequently or 13 personnel with three tight ends out there. You want to be spreading the field and then running your backs near the goal line. I want to get your take on the commander's defense, but in a global kind of way. Uh, Washington's defense for the 2021 regular season was a massive disappointment, especially the pass defense. And I know for me, one of the more frustrating aspects was that here you had Washington having spent all of these draft picks and resources on defense and yet still not having a consistently great defense. It ended up being that Washington for the 2021 regular season had the hardest schedule in the NFL per DVOA. Uh, Some of your best work has been on the importance and significance of an NFL team schedule. Are we just now at a point in the NFL with passing offense being what it is that a defense largely is at the mercy of the opposing quarterbacks and opposing offenses the defense is facing? In other words, should the days of an NFL team spending a lot in the way of draft capital and salary cap space on defense be over? In my opinion, ideally, you're avoiding being bottom 10, and that's about it. Like, you, you don't want to be the worst five defenses in the NFL, but if you are slightly below average, it's okay. Um, we need an offense that's going to carry us and carry the day for us, and the defense just can't be disastrous. And you're right. So much of it just hinges purely on the schedule. And that's why I'm big on Washington's defense rebounding a little bit. And it's also why I forecast that Washington's defense was going to look bad last year. Because at this time last season, I did my analysis. I wrote my book. And in that book, I said, I'm looking at Washington's schedule. Washington's schedule for 2021 of opposing offenses looks very difficult and I think this defense is going to get exposed because they weren't as good in 2020 as we thought and now they're playing a brutal schedule of offenses what ends up happening you guys played the number one most difficult schedule of offenses last year the number one most difficult schedule of quarterbacks last year this upcoming season in 2022 I forecast you will play the fifth easiest schedule of opposing offenses and the fourth easiest schedule of opposing quarterbacks and if that comes to fruition if that's what actually happens if you're playing one of the five easiest schedules of opposing offenses this defense even if it was identical personnel from last year is undoubtedly going to look a lot better this upcoming season and the other thing that's going to regress positively in my opinion is your third down defense which was the worst in the nfl on early downs i study early downs versus third downs a lot early downs you were 17th in the nfl but you were absolutely terrible on third downs the worst in the NFL. So now you go from the number one most difficult schedule and you'll no longer be the worst team in the NFL on third downs to a much easier schedule. I think this defense is going to look better and be more improved this year. Philosophically, completely agree with you. The days of uh, trying to assemble, go out of free agency, sign all these big name defensive players, spend a ton of money on defense and just have this unit that's able to sustain like a, a Brad Johnson level quarterback play or something like that. Um, 
you just got to hope that you don't run into any great offenses uh, because you can win games. That's the beauty of the NFL playoffs. Anything can happen, and you can have some games that are ugly and gross, and that's what happens. But most of these playoff games, you're, you're having high-caliber quarterback play with good play callers calling those plays, and it's just difficult even if you have a really talented defense. If you have a really subpar offense, you're not going to be able to – and the days – I don't know when's the last time that we had a truly great defense with a truly great offense. I know the Buffalo Bills are close to trying to build that this year. I mean, the Kansas City Chiefs are on the opposite end of the spectrum. Their defense has a lot of question marks and might struggle this year, but their offense is really good. The Bills' defense has been really good last year. They've got a really good offense, but I think their defense is going to fall back a little bit this season. I don't think their defense is going to give them as much as they were giving them last year, in large part due to the schedule. Excellent. Warren, I could talk to you all day, man. Uh, Warren Sharp of sharpfootballanalysis.com and sharpfootballstats.com. He is the author of the Sharp Football Analysis 2022 Football Preview. You can get the book at sharpfootballanalysis.com. Warren, thank you so much for your time and all the best to you. Thanks for having me, Al. Well, as Nationals manager Davey Martinez likes to say, the boys did battle. Uh, The Nats on Thursday night did rally. They homered in the ninth inning of the game for the third time in two days. uh, The Nats in the bottom of the ninth had Josh Bell batting with Victor Robles on second base, two outs, and the team trailing 5-4. But Bell struck out swinging on six pitches to end the game, and the Nats lost again, a 5-4 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. And Game one of a four-game series. The Nats now have lost seven consecutive games. The Nats now have lost 13 of the team's last 14 games. The Nats, since a three-game winning streak from June 26th through the 28th, have won exactly one game. We are halfway into the month of July 2022. We'll see what transpires the rest of this month, obviously. But right now, the month of July 2022 is shaping up to be one of the worst months in the history of the Nats franchise. The Nats in the 2022 regular season now are 30 and 61. That is the worst record in the majors. And the Nats have the worst run differential in the majors at minus 145. And the Nats in the 2022 regular season now are 7 and 34 against the National League East. We all get that the Nats are a really bad team and are in the midst of a rebuild here. But boy, some of the numbers really just like slap you across the face with just how bad this team is this season. Uh, Kind of a strange game on Thursday night. The Nats out hit the Braves 11-6. And it's not like all 11 of the Nats hits were singles. Among the Nats, 11 hits were two home runs and a double. But the Braves hit three home runs, two of which came off the Nats starting pitcher, Anibal Sanchez. Yes, Anibal Sanchez, a.k.a. Sanchi, a.k.a. the Sanchez, was back on Thursday night. Actually, Mark Sanchez was the Sanchez. And we, we remember how Mark Sanchez's lone game as a Redskins quarterback went in the 2018 season. Well, Anibal Sanchez on Thursday night was not quite as bad as Mark Sanchez was in that blowout loss to the New York Giants at FedEx Field in December 2018. But it certainly wasn't like Anibal Sanchez on Thursday night was great. Uh, So the Nats on Thursday afternoon returned from rehab and reinstated Anibal Sanchez. 
from the 60-day injured list. Uh, more on the Nats roster maneuvering, by the way, in a bit. Uh, but the Nats in March signed Sanchez to a minor league contract. As you may recall, he made the Nats season opening rotation. The Nats this past April 5th announced that they had selected the contract of Sanchez, meaning that he had made their season opening rotation, but he then got hurt. Uh, the Nats on April 10th placed Sanchez on the 10-day injured list with a cervical neck impingement. The Nats on May 3rd transferred Sanchez to the 60-day injured list. Well, he on Thursday night was back pitching in a major league regular season game for the first time since the 2020 season. He allowed four runs in five innings. Uh, now, there were positives. Uh, he recorded five strikeouts. That was good. He tossed scoreless second, third, and fourth innings. That was good. But the negatives uh, outweighed the positives if you're just evaluating the actual performance. If you're looking at this as, hey, a guy was pitching in a major league regular season game for the first time in two seasons, you know, you're great on a curve, I suppose. But if you're just being objective about things, I mean, he got off to a really bad start on Thursday night. He gave up two home runs. He issued two walks. And he did not throw a lot of strikes. 90 pitches, just 52 strikes versus 38 balls. Uh, Sanchez in the top of the first allowed two runs. He issued a leadoff five-pitch walk of Ronald Acuna Jr. Acuna then stole second base, and the steal yielded a throwing error by catcher Kbert Ruiz advancing Acuna to third base. We're not used to seeing that from Ruiz. He made a really bad throw on that play. And then Sanchez gave up the first of the two home runs that he allowed. He gave up a two-run homer to Dansby Swanson to left field for a 2-0 Braves lead despite Swanson having been down to the count of 1.02. Sanchez, in the top of the fifth, allowed two more runs. Uh, he gave up a leadoff full-count single to Travis Darno to left field. Sanchez gave up a single to Marcelo Zuna to left field, despite him having been down to the count at 1.02. And Sanchez gave up a two-out full-count two-run homer to Michael Harris the second to right field for a 4-2 Braves lead, despite Harris having been down to the count at 1.12. And that homer was some shot. The homer went a projected 410 feet for a stat cast. I mean, look, what did you expect from Anibal Sanchez, okay? He should not be pitching for the Nets. All right, point blank period. Anibal Sanchez should not be pitching for the Nets. He's pitching for the Nets because the team remains in a really bad way in terms of organizational pitching depth. This season is Sanchez's age 38 season. He, in the 2021 MLB regular season, did not pitch in the majors. He had last pitched in an MLB regular season game in the 2020 regular season. And he, in that season for the Nats, was really bad. 53 innings, 11 starts, ERA of 662, ERA plus of just 67, 100 is league average, and a whip of 166. So yeah, four runs in five innings on Thursday night was about right. Here was Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters late night on Thursday night on Anibal Sanchez. The first inning, I think he had a little bit of jitters, believe it or not. Um, but then he settled down, and, 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 and he was throwing the ball really, really well. And then um, he, had, he had a battle there with Harris. Um, threw the threw the pitch up, you know, and he got to it, you know, and um, just like I said, one one pitch uh, for me to, you know, um, change the game. But um, I thought he, he competed and did really well. Yeah, look, respect to Anibal Sanchez for how good he ended up being for the Nats in their 2019 World Series championship season. But to me, it's hard if you're a Nats fan to get into Anibal Sanchez pitching for this team this season. Now, one of the corresponding roster moves to the Nats on Thursday afternoon, reinstating Sanchez 
from the 60-day injured list was them optioning reliever Mason Thompson to AAA Rochester. And this was a shame. Thompson fell victim to a numbers game and fell victim to still being optionable. Now, he could be brought right back up from Rochester sooner rather than later, so I don't want to make too big of a deal out of this. But Mason Thompson on Thursday afternoon got optioned to Rochester despite having tossed five scoreless innings since the Nats on July 1st returned Thompson from rehabilitation assignment and reinstated him from the 60-day injured list. Uh, The Nats on April 10th placed Thompson on the 10-day injured list with a right bicep strain and then on May 10th transferred Thompson to the 60-day injured list. He had looked really good since coming back, but uh, he's now back at Rochester. But the Nats' bullpen on Thursday night was good once again. Uh, The bullpen is on a nice run here. Three Nats relievers on Thursday night combined to allow one run in four innings. Uh, Andres Machado did give up a run. He, in the top of the six, allowed a run on a one-out solo homer by Matt Olson to right field for a 5-2 Braves lead. But Hunter Harvey tossed a perfect top of the seventh. And Tyler Clippard tossed two scoreless innings in his 2022 Major League regular season debut for the Nats. Uh, Clippard looked good. Perfect top of the eighth. He struck out Ronald Acuna Jr. swinging on four pitches for the second out. Uh, It was amazing. We on Thursday night for the rebuilding Nats had their first pitcher in the game being Anibal Sanchez, who is in his age 38 season, and their last pitcher in the game being Tyler Clippard, who is in his age 37 season. But I'll say this, if Clippard pitches well over the next few weeks, I do think it's possible that the Nats could get something for him come the MLB trade deadline on August 2nd. As odd as that may sound, with Clippard having been buried in Rochester for so much of the season and having just been brought up and having just made his 2022 Major League regular season debut, I do think it's possible that Nats president of baseball operations and general manager Mike Rizzo could actually be able to flip Clippard for a prospect or prospects, who knows, uh, almost certain to be traded by the Nats by August 2nd are Josh Bell and Nelson Cruz. And each guy had a run scoring hit for the Nats on Thursday night. Uh, Bell as the Nats starting first baseman and number two batter, two for five with a solo homer and a single. He did strike out to end the game, as I noted, but Bell in the Nats one run first, a one out full count solo homer to the second deck in right field to cut the Nats deficit to 2-1. What a home run that was by Josh Bell. The homer winner projected 431 feet per stat cast, and Bell in the bottom of the fifth had a one-out single to right field. Nelson Cruz on Thursday night as an Nats starting DH and number four batter, one for four with an RBI single. Uh, he and the Nats one run eighth, a one-out opposite field RBI single through the right side of the infield to cut the Nats deficit to 5-3. And Cruz in that inning had a two-out stolen base, although it was one of those uncontested stolen bases. Uh, Juan Soto on Thursday night did not hit a home run, uh, did not homer for just a second time in six games, but he did have two more hits, including an extra base hit. Soto as an at-starting right fielder and number three batter, two for four with a double and a single. Uh, Soto in the bottom of the fifth, a one-out opposite field single to left center field. And Soto in that Nats one-run eighth, a one-out first pitch, opposite field double to left center field. The ball got by brave center fielder Michael Harris the second. Soto continues to hit well. His OPS for the 2022 regular season has shot up by 100 points since June 22nd. Soto through June 22nd, had an OPS of 796. His OPS for the 2022 regular season now up to 896. In less than a month, Juan Soto 
has boosted his OPS by 100 points. That is not easy to do, and yet Soto has done that. Uh, Also, Michael Franco homered on Thursday night. He is an at-starting third baseman and number eight batter, one for four with a solo homer and an RBI ground out. Uh, Franco in the Nats, one run second, a bases loaded RBI ground out to tie the game at two. Yeah, that was disappointing. The Nats had the bases loaded, nobody out in the bottom of the second, only ended up scoring one run. Uh, But Franco in the Nats, one run ninth, a one out solo homer to left field of Braves closer Kenley Jansen to cut the Nats deficit to 5-4. That homer going a projected 405 feet per stat cast. Uh, Luis Garcia on Thursday night had two singles. He was an ad starting shortstop and number one batter. Uh, He went two for five, bottom of the fifth, a one-out single to center field. But Garcia got thrown out at home plate on that Juan Soto one-out opposite field single to left center field on a great throw by brave center fielder Michael Harris II. And then Garcia in the bottom of the ninth had a two-out single through the right side of the infield. And I mentioned K-Bert Ruiz having that throwing error. That was bad, but he also had a single and a walk in the game. He is an at starting catcher and number six batter, one for three with a single and a walk. He and the Nats, one run second, had a first pitch single through the middle of the infield to beat the shift. And Ruiz in the bottom of the fourth drew a one out six pitch walk. Uh, also, I do want to acknowledge this with the Nats. Where we are with Steven Strasburg, And where we are seems to be nowhere. So as I said earlier, the Nats on Thursday afternoon returned from rehab and reinstated Anibal Sanchez from the 60-day injured list. To make room for Sanchez on the 40-man roster, the Nats transferred starting pitcher Steven Strasburg to the 60-day injured list. We just are not hearing anything right now on Steven Strasburg. There are like no updates there is like no conversation. And there certainly seems to be zero optimism that he's going to pitch again this season. And that's not necessarily surprising. But to me, it's odd, just like the lack of acknowledgement of Steven Strasburg, your biggest money player remains out. His career is in jeopardy. And like nobody's talking about this, I feel like. Uh, The Nats on June 14th placed Strasburg on the 15-day injured list, retroactive to June 11th with a stress reaction of the ribs. He had a 7-4 loss at the Miami Marlins on June 9th in his 2022 Major League debut, allowed seven runs in four and two-thirds innings. So he made one Major League regular season start and then was right back to being out with injury. Now, the way it works with Strasburg being transferred to the 60-day IL is the 60-day count didn't start on Thursday. The 60-day count starts with when he was placed on the 15-day IL, which was retroactively June 11th. So it is possible that Strasburg could be activated come, say, August. I don't think that anyone is counting on that right now, but that is possible. But just the lack of information that we are being provided on the status of Steven Strasburg, uh, I find odd. And I also find ominous, you know, you get the feeling that the Nats and Strasburg are like out of answers with this guy. Like what else is there left to say here? He has made a total of eight major league regular season starts over the last three seasons. This season is Steven Strasburg's age 33 season and the third season of a 70 year, $245 million contract to which he was re-signed in December 2019, and he, since signing that contract, has made a total of eight major league regular season starts 
due to injury. And the major surgery that he underwent last July 28th, season-ending surgery to address neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome, uh, that remains something that I feel like forever changed Strasburg and just that he's never going to be the pitcher who we came to know and love in that 2019 season again. And it may well be that his career is essentially over. I mean, I hate saying that, but I don't know how you don't think that. I mean, again, eight major league regular season starts over the last three seasons. He remains out this season of having made one major league regular season start. He on Thursday afternoon got transferred to the 60-day injured list and like nobody's talking about it. Nobody's making a big deal about it. And it's almost like, yeah, he got transferred. Okay. Well, how's he doing? You know, where is he at? Nobody knows. Nobody seems to want to talk about this. <laughs> Game two for the Nats against the Braves at Nationals Park is on Friday night at 7.05. And speaking of big money contracts that aren't working out, Patrick Corbin will be the Nats starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Monday show, episode 358, will include plenty of commander's conversation. We'll see if the Capitals have done anything more in NHL free agency. And I'll talk plenty of Nationals and Orioles with not just each team completing its pre-All-Star break portion of the season this weekend, but also each team having a top five pick in Sunday night's first round of the MLB draft. Yeah, the 2022 MLB draft will begin this Sunday night. The O's have the number one pick. The Nats have the number five pick. Uh, The Nats this weekend will play the final three games of a four-game series against the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. The O's this weekend will play a three-game series at the Tampa Bay Rays in a series with legitimate American League wild card standings implications. Could it be? Might it be? That we'll be talking about the Orioles winning streak having gotten to 13 games. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you on Monday. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody.